Welcome back to the Plowcast. This is the sixth and final episode in this series covering our generations issue. I'm Susanna Black Roberts, senior editor at Plow. In this episode, we'll be talking with Leah Labresco Sargent and Alexander Rakin about medically assisted suicide, and then we'll be answering your questions. Leah Labresco Sargent is the author of Arriving at Amen and Building the Benedict Option, and is a Plow contributing editor. She runs Other Feminisms, a Substack community focusing on interdependence, and tweets at Leah Labresco. Alexander Rakin is a freelance journalist in Washington, D.C., who specializes in medical ethics. He's on Twitter at Alexander Rakin. So welcome, Alexander and Leah. Um, and we are here to talk about Alexander's uh, extensive reporting um, on the subject of MAID, medical assistance in dying in Canada, um, a piece uh, for, the, in, for the New Atlantis, which came out about a month ago or so. Is that right? Right. And I have another piece that came out for the National Review um, last week. So Alexander, what, what is going on in Canada? As, um, what's, what's up over there? <laughs> well, the sky is kind of falling down. Um, everyone knows that the sky is falling down. So disability advocates have been saying that the sky has been falling down now for years. Uh, media has been reporting almost every day now. Uh, there are new and disturbing cases of potential abuse uh, in assisted dying. Uh, Canada, yeah, so Canada now has the world's largest and fastest growing euthanasia program. Every single day in 2021, uh, which was the last year that we have data, more than 27 Canadians died by the hands of their physicians or nurses. And that's double the rate of unassisted suicide. How did this happen? How did we get here? Right. I mean, that's the million dollar question. Uh, you know, uh, it, it, it is pretty jarring uh, just how quickly Canada has fallen headfirst into euthanasia. Because 10 years ago, right, this was considered essentially culpable homicide. Right. Uh, the House of Commons voted repeatedly against it. In 2010, there was a vote where three quarters of the House of Commons voted against it. Uh, in polling, Canadians largely viewed that when, when asked between supporting the legalization of assisted suicide in euthanasia or increasing palliative care or both, Canadians overwhelmingly chose palliative care. And yet, <laughs> Canada within 10 years has gone from a jurisdiction where euthanasia is, again, a culpable homicide, a criminal offense, to now this being almost standard protocol for any form of medical service. Anyone with any chronic uh, disability or illness is essentially eligible. Like to die, in, uh, to die of euthanasia in Canada, you just need to have something like hearing loss. Right. You, you don't need to be in pain. You don't need to have a terminal illness. You can have hearing loss. Um, so that was uh, Alan Nicholson. Um, that was one of the cases where he had depression. He came out of a hospital um, and then unbeknownst to the family, uh, he was qualified uh, for euthanasia by physicians. Uh, when his family found out about it 48 hours before the procedure, uh, they tried to stop it, right? So they sent urgent, they called uh, the hospital. Um, they tried to send medical files, right? Showing of his history of, of his psychiatric history. Uh, they tried to call the police uh, when uh, the hospital wasn't responding to them. And yet Alan Nicholson still died for euthanasia 48 hours later. Afterwards, by the way, the family tried to contact the police again. Uh, trying to find out the reason 
why he was deemed to have the capacity to consent. And that's how they found that on his made, uh, his made application, the reason that was given for his grievous and irremediable medical condition, which in theory is the legal requirement, was two, were, were two words, hearing loss. I think part of what's so striking about that example is that you know, Canada's kind of taking the perspective that the safer course is killing, uh, that any level of delay, reflection, looping in family members who might want to intervene is disadvantaging someone. As part of my reporting for The New Atlantis, I found uh, two years of seminars, of training seminars that were conducted by um, an organization called the Canadian Association of MAID, that's Medical Assistance in Dying, Assessors and Providers, right, in short KMAP. They're um, essentially a random group of physicians that got together uh, when MAID was being decriminalized by the Supreme Court in 2015. So that was the Carter v. Canada case. Uh, they got together and decided, we're going to be the experts on this. Um, and later on, they were essentially given the imprimatur uh, from the federal government, where they are currently the ones being paid to develop the voluntary training standard. So they're the ones who are developing their own training standards. I interviewed the president of the organization, Stephanie Green, and she has personally performed at least 300 uh, made procedures herself, and she has assessed at least another 400. So I interviewed her and asked her about all of these potential stories of abuse that have been that were being reported in Canada. I asked her, right, is it true? You know, have you heard of anyone getting made because of things like lack of housing, lack of appropriate medical care, poverty? Uh, and well, she said matter of factly, no, that those stories aren't true, that they're clickbait. They're not being reported accurately. No one is dying in Canada because of a lack of housing. That's what she told me in April of 2022. Well. It turns out her own organization, slightly less than a year prior, in May of 2021, had an entire seminar dedicated to just this topic on people receiving MAID, driven to choose MAID, not because of their medical condition, not because of any medical suffering or physical suffering, but purely because of, quote, a lack of resources. So in those cases, people can have diabetes, right? But they're homeless. They could have fibromyalgia, right, which is a chronic uh, pain condition, but they can't get the medical care that they need. Uh, they can have arthritis, but they have credit card debt. And all of these cases, these physicians know what is causing them to apply, why their patients are applying for MAID. And they're granting it in many of these cases. And this is causing them moral distress. So this organization has quite a few seminars dedicated on how to deal with moral distress of what the situation is. And it's not for moral distress of the patients, it's for moral distress of the physicians who are ending the lives of their patients from treatable and preventable medical conditions. In your original New Atlantis piece, that was really what's one of the main things that struck me about those training sessions where it, it again, it seems like one of those things where, wow, virtue ethics is real. And these are people who are being, who are allowing themselves to and actively choosing to change themselves into people who are okay with doing this. So the, the goal of the session seems to be wear down that part of you or have a, learn how to have a conversation with that part of you that has moral distress in this 
and shut them up, shut that part of you up. Is that an accurate representation? Yeah, I mean, uh, so before publication for the New Atlantis, we sent KMAP and Stephanie Green uh, a list of questions, right? Talking about the seeming contradiction between what she told me in my interview and uh, and also what she told Parliament, by the way. So <laughs> it's okay to lie to me. It's another thing to lie to the Parliament of Canada. Um, but, uh, uh, but we asked her about the sort of contradiction between these training seminars and what she said publicly. Um, she responded by saying that uh, she wanted to know what the seminars were. <laughs> she asked us to send her own organization, her own training seminars, which we did. We told her how she could find it on her own website. Uh, then she didn't respond. Uh, the only response that she ever, that her organization ever get, gave was when the National Post, um, which is a sort of center-right, mainstream Canadian publication, newspaper, um, they published a, a summary of what I found in New Atlantis. And uh, the, new, uh, the National Post asked Stephanie Green to, uh, to comment. And a spokesperson for KMAP commented. And the only thing that they said, or at least that was, was what the National Post reported, was that KMF, sorry, I'm just laughing at this just because how ridiculous it is. Uh, KMF's only response was that these training seminars were private. Ah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that was one of the things that really meant the most to me about your reporting, because I think we've heard a little bit kind of in different anecdotes about how expansively medical aid and dying is being applied, how much it's being offered to people who call in wanting a wheelchair ramp and are asked, well, would you would you prefer dying? You know, we we might have wheelchair ramps, but there's a waiting list, but we can do death right now. Um, but what you gave was that inside look at what are people thinking when they're offering this? And it's so striking that they do have, you know, some of the same normal reservations any person would have. And they're in a peer group that's saying, you've got to let go of those. Those promote inequity. You know, it's your job not to question the patient, not to do anything but take their request for death or even consideration of death as a strong sign to move forward. You know, and when I contrast that with the way people talk about suicidal ideation outside the context of MAID, where the constant reminder is people will have passing in, uh, inclinations to commit suicide. You want to have guns out of your house. You want to have nets on bridges. You know, you want to have anything that will slow people down so they can get out of that moment where what they want is suicide and get to a place where they feel better, uh, which most people do. And here, you know, any passing inclination for death is taken as you know, holy writ that death is the right choice for this person. Yeah. I mean, it, look, nine out of 10 failed suicide attempts are never tried again. Yes. And here, you know, the doctors are willing to do, you know, same day, next day procedures. Yes. It's 100% effective. That's what Stephanie Green told me, right? Once you have, and look, there's I, one of the sort of striking things that I, that has sort of stuck into my mind is that speaking to so many people with disabilities, right? And them telling me, oh, how difficult it is to get medical care in Canada. Canada's medical system is collapsing. <laughs> Don't take my word for it. That's literally, that's uh, what the head of the Canadian Medical Association said last summer, that Canada's healthcare system is undergoing a collapse. Last month, uh, the Canadian Federal Minister of Health said that Canada's healthcare system is undergoing a sickness. Now look, he said it in French, but it still counts. <laughs> uh, 
you want to see someone, a psychiatrist specialized in treatment-resistant mental illnesses. Someone like John Mayer, um, who's a, a, a psychiatrist in Ontario, and he leads a team uh, in Toronto. He has a five-year waiting period. Five years. And yet, I, look, I'm a Canadian citizen. I, apply, I applied for MAID as well. And I managed to schedule an appointment. So first of all, calling the hotline, it, take, it took 30 seconds for me to speak to a bureaucrat. No other public service in my entire life as a Canadian have I been able to speak to someone within 30 seconds of calling the hotline. And I called at like 1 p.m., right? It was supposed to, I thought it would be a busy time. Uh, and I spoke to the bureaucrat. They never asked for, uh, they never asked what my medical condition is. They never asked, um, they never suggested any other alternatives or potential sources. Um, they never asked, you know, th there was no discussion over, you know, suicide prevention. All that it was was bureaucratic. I didn't even have to give my Ontario health insurance number, my OHIP. Um, so none of that was required. And instead, all that she gave, she asked for me is essentially my, my address, uh, my phone number, and uh, Six hours later, a nurse calls me um, on behalf of this uh, hotline asking if I'm interested in scheduling my maid appointment, my first um, maid consultation. So again, so this is the first consultation, but this is a consultation with either a nurse practitioner or a physician, right, um, in two weeks. And she said it could be sooner <laughs> if there are, uh, if there are um, uh, other circumstances that are pushing for it. I don't know any other service in Canada where you can get medical care or just any public service as quickly as that. Like I couldn't see my own family physician within two weeks <laughs> unless there was an emergency. Yeah, that really mirrors, you know, one of the, I think of Canada as kind of a warning sign for where the U.S. might be going because we've had nurses striking in New York because they just can't take care of patients and they know that they're understaffed and, you know, that moral wound of being there, knowing what your patient needs and not being able to give it to them really weighs on them. They were striking to say, we need enough nurses on the floor that we can take care of people who depend on us. And I see some of this push for made as a way of solving the problem of not funding or supporting healthcare workers who know they're not giving people the care they need. And then made is presented as a solution. We throw enough of them in the trash, you know, maybe the surge will quiet down and you'll be able to care for the remaining patients in the way that they deserve. And it's so frustrating because, you know, you, you have this reporting on people salving their consciences about putting people to death for being poor, and in the meantime, we hear people speaking up and saying, I can't work in these situations. I'm thinking of quitting my job because I go in every day knowing I'm failing them as a nurse. And the solution isn't more nurses or more staffing or safe staffing. It's, well, what if we put some of your patients to death and we relieve the strain a little? Right. So I, I do want to say that having spoken to enough of these made providers, they legitimately believe that this is life-saving. One of them described it to me that it's almost like a safety belt. <laughs> that uh, if you have made in your, as a safety belt or as a, in your back pocket, you can fight your disease uh, with more vigor. That would be more convincing if they weren't putting as many people to death. One of the things that, so just to sort of like clarify what the primary moral um, sort of rights-based claim that all, all of this is falling under, it's autonomy. It's the idea that the primary uh, 
obligation of physicians is to maximize their patient's autonomy, to do what they will with regard to their own health, even if that means um, killing themselves. And this is presented, you know, again, in there was a, obviously the commercial that many people saw going around um, just before Christmas, um, w which kind of was essentially a very well put together um, and slick advertisement for MAID. This is presented as something that you can do as a personal life choice that will help you um, live your life and death beautifully and according to your own will. The advertisement was by a department clothing company, right? It was, they, they were viewing it as almost like a lifestyle brand. That was the advertisement. But um, that individual, uh, later, it turns out that her friends uh, spoke to media afterwards and said that her friend actually wanted to live. She just couldn't get the medical care that she needed. One of the things that was striking to me in, the, in our piece was that you describe um, in so after 2015, the section um, of the Canadian um, Charter of Rights and Freedoms that was used to make the 2015 decision to permit MAID, um, that same section of the charter had been used two decades prior to criminalize euthanasia in uh, Rodriguez versus British Columbia. Um, the quote was, human life should not be deprecated by allowing life to be taken, especially by a physician. So how did the same section of, of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms get flipped to support the opposite of what it had been taken to support two decades prior? Like what was, that's, that's very striking to me. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? The logic that the Supreme Court used is that by criminalizing physician-assisted dying, that individuals who have uh, a degenerative disease are forced to take their own life when they are capable, uh, which is not necessarily when they would like to have actually died, right? In other words, if I have, you know, Alzheimer's, right, I would be forced to commit suicide when I still have the capability to do it, not, you know, several years down the line. So that was the logic that they used why, uh, why a prohibition on physician-assisted assisted dying violated people's rights for life. However, there's no evidence for this. There's no evidence of this, for this at all. Uh, what we've seen in Canada is between 2016 and 2021, the years that we have data on this, that the number of May deaths have increased by a magnitude of tenfold. The number of DIY suicides has remained essentially flat since 2003. We have not seen any reduction in the number of suicides. What we've seen is a huge growth, right? A 1,000% increase in the number of assisted deaths. And the reason for that is because the type of people who choose MAID are not the type of people who attempt suicide. The people who are doing this are more likely to be older, right? They're more likely to be uh, to request it because of lack of meeting, the, the idea that they're feeling like a burden. Um, people are choosing to die not because of physical pain. They're choosing to die because of fear or because of societal stigma. That latter idea, I, I think sort of getting directly into the misunderstanding, I think, of what humans are and how we work, that something like um, 
MAID points to is, is maybe something we want to talk about now. So one of the things that has, I think Lee and I have both thought about is essentially one of the things that is important for keeping people alive or important for like un people understanding their, their own lives in a positive way is that suicide is off the table. So the fact of suicide being something that, you know, your doctor might be recommending or that, you know, might be socially acceptable or that you might feel like you need to explain why you're not choosing it is itself something that like living in a world, living in a society where that kind of social imaginary is what you're living in itself is going to, you know, make your life appreciably subjectively worse because you will be constantly thinking, you know, you won't have the attitude towards your own life that it's precious. You'll have the attitude towards your own life that, you know, if it's, if my, my utils are not up, up to snuff, my, my um, subjective positive life experience is not up to snuff, or if I am perhaps burdening others, um, really, I ought to be. I ought to kill myself. And that obviously is a bad outcome. Killing yourself is a bad outcome, but also experiencing your own life in a world where you have the right and possibly, you know, you really ought to kill yourself. That's a terrible way to live, it seems to me. In a kind of a parallel problem, there was great reporting in The Atlantic by Sarah Zhang about the people who have children with Down syndrome. Um, and it's that same idea that kind of the default shifts once you get to a point of prenatal testing and you're talking to doctors who kind of expect you to choose abortion when you find out your child has Down syndrome. Uh, it made people feel guiltier in some cases um, because they didn't feel like they had a child with a disability or a child who was different. They felt like they'd chosen to have a child with a disability. Um, so instead of just receiving a child, they'd chosen it and sometimes feeling like they were choosing it against medical advice. And that made it a lot harder on the parents um, versus, you know, simply just saying this is part of what it means to be open to life and open to having a child. You may have a child with Down syndrome, you may not. Or, you know, you're opting into this in a world where everyone opts out. You as someone who's ill, as someone who's disabled, you're now opting in to continue living. But are you aware that like 60% of people in your position opt out? What's so different about you? How are you justifying why you would pick this when so many people like you are choosing to die? That is something that I found. I actually, I'll, I'll, I'll read you something if that's okay. Um, one of the cases that I covered in the New Atlantis was uh, a 41-year-old woman named Rosina Camas. So Rosina had fibromyalgia. She had chronic PTSD. She had depression. She had a myriad of physical and mental uh, illnesses. Um, how, so when I originally started doing this, I thought that her case would be a more nuanced discussion over someone's choice for an assisted death. Uh, but when I started interviewing her powers of attorney, her friends, when I spoke to her family, uh, it became apparent that it really wasn't. Uh, Rosina, so her powers of attorney gave me her, her entire Google Drive, um, essentially her entire life. Um, and in it, uh, she discussed her reasons for choosing me. She wrote in a note that her suffering was mental, not physical. Uh, and that if she had more people to speak with, uh, she, she felt that she would have been able to continue living. Now, the reason why I'm saying this is there's another element of the story, 
which is one of Rosina's powers of attorney, uh, has the same medical condition, the same condition that qualified Rosina Camus to die, which is fibromyalgia. And uh, he asked me not to use his uh, name because he currently lives on disability pay um, and he is facing eviction and he wanted his story uh, to be shared, but only with a pseudonym. So let's call him John. Well, John told me that he knows what it's like to be living with the constant specter of maid, the same medical, the same qualifying condition as Rosina's. He knows he could stop and he knows that it's going to be inevitable. So what he told me is, quote, I'm going to take it one day. That's how it feels to me. I don't like that. But to me, the way things are going, this society is really sending us disabled people a message, he said. We've got that message even before made, but now it's codified into law and there's these processes and resources to expedite it. I have diagnosed mental health conditions and I can't get treatment. I need therapy. My doctor asked me the other day, what do I need? I need therapy. I need a long-term relationship with someone. And she told me, she said, that's impossible. Instead, what he was sent were YouTube videos of how to stretch. And he, he laughed to me when he uh, <laughs> told me this. And I, I kind of felt bad for laughing too. But then, he, then John said, I need actual health care. But eventually he'll get made instead. So it, it is completely true that nobody is forced to receive MAID at gunpoint. But once you legalize MAID, everyone with disabilities will be forced to consider it. And what society, what the government of Canada is telling people, um, what, what they should be telling people with disability is that their lives matter, that people with disabilities are equal citizens, that what they need is more support, not a quicker death. Instead, what they get is the world's largest and most permissive euthanasia program under a prime minister that has never received any, largely any consequences for, for any of this. Canadian media has been largely silent on actually connecting the dots of all of these troubling stories. Justin Trudeau was on the cover of JQ, on the, color, the cover of Rolling Stone. The Atlantic described his government as the most successful progressive government in the world. And yet, at the same time, he was implementing one of the largest system of eugenics that Canada, that North America has ever seen. And there have been no consequences. There has been no really significant introspection. It does feel to me as though there is a, a fundamental and quite rapid but very distinct change in civilization going on, um, such that, you know, a, a basic concept in what has been our civilization for the last, you know, 1700 years or so, um, 1600 years, um, this basic concept that human life is sacred in some way that each person, however poor, however disabled, however um, in pain, you know, whatever suffering you're undergoing, each person has the same, you know, whether king or pauper has the same um, I mean, it, it seems weird to have to describe this because it, it, it's like, I thought we knew this, but has something um, that's almost like having a treasure, which is the sacredness of his own life. You're, you have your own life. And that's something that you're required to guard, that you have an obligation to do well with, that other people don't have the right to take. Um, there's something sacred about your own body that other people don't have the right to, to violate. And that 
you know, this is something that exists whether or not you will it to. It's something that you have. Um, and that concept of what it is to be a human being um, and that idea of this possession, this, this sacredness of the sacred life that each person has, that's just not a thing anymore. That doesn't exist. Um, or at least, obviously, it's still, I think it still exists, but like the common social belief seems to be going away um, quite rapidly. So I, I, I do want to, so l let me let me clarify. First of all, um, the Catholic Church in Canada has been extremely outspoken on this. Um, and I, I, I should say that, um, so I think BC, the British Columbia Catholic um, Church has, uh, um, a, I think, a monthly magazine where they've actually been covering a lot of these stories that mainstream media didn't cover. So I, I do want to clarify that there are obviously opponents to this. Um, and as well, there are Catholic churches and other faith-based institutions um, within Canada's healthcare system. And they're currently trying to fight that they do not have to provide made on site. So that's really where, that, I mean, that's how far gone the battle has been, right? Where Catholic hospitals have to, have to convince legislators um, that they should not be forced to provide euthanasia on site um, and instead be allowed to take um, their patients elsewhere to be euthanized. That's really, that, that's where the situation is. Um, and it's unclear if faith-based institutions are gonna be able to win that fight. Um, there, there is already effective referral requirements in British Columbia, Ontario, and Quebec, where if you're a physician and you do not want to euthanize your patient for whatever reason, you have a requirement to make an effective referral to another physician who you know performs euthanasia for those cases. So next month, unless the government manages, unless Parliament of Canada manages to pass a bill to extend this, um, next month, people with only psychiatric conditions will qualify for MAID. And I, I, should, I, I should also mention, um, it's not entirely true. Some people with psychiatric conditions already do qualify for MAID. So anorexia patients, for instance, have been qualifying since the very beginning. Um, even though the entire idea of like a terminal anorexia doesn't really exist um, in medicine. And that the treatment for anorexia is regaining the will to live well, you know, and finding a way out of a destructive spiral, uh, which is hard. But to say that instead, you know, it would be wrong to stop eating and to starve, but it's right to take poison and to die is so nonsensical. Yeah, but that's that's how far gone the entire the entire medical system is we kind of have that in Canada right now, where disability advocacy groups, again, much more limited, but disability advocacy groups or disability uh, aid groups, right, where people with disabilities can get some sort of uh, care. Many of them have started putting out signs that say the same things. It's like three sentences. Your life is valuable. Um, your life is important. Um, we we will not we will not refer to you uh made for lack of resources right and this is now over 50 different disability advocacy groups in canada have started putting up signs like those so i'm i'm confident that the same thing is going to happen soon um for uh um for hospitals and other medical clinics as well 
it does seem like two different overlapping civilizations at this point with two different basic ideas of what human life is and what the goals of human life are. We've been here before, right? I, I, I think it's important to stress this. Uh, the eugenics movement did not just start in 2015, right? I, I think there's a lot of parallels with the sterilization movement in North America, right? Similarly, you also had faith-minded uh, Americans saying no. The only part of the British Empire that had a main, like a large scale sterilization program was the province of Alberta. Um, and that was the, called the Alberta Eugenics Board. So they started sterilizing uh, the feeble-minded um, in 1927. Uh, and at first it was a consensual model where, uh, where the only people who were sterilized either had to themselves, they had to consent to it or their legal guardian or an immediate family member had to consent to it. Uh, but by the by, I think 1931, uh, or roughly in the early 1930s, uh, that proved to be too cumbersome, and the province of Alberta removed that requirement. So it went from a consensual model to a non-consensual model. Uh, and as you know, in the United States, right, Indiana was the first state to implement a sterilization program in 1907. Uh, by the early 1930s, more than half of American states had a form of sterilization, and this is, of course. Uh, was then picked up by Nazi Germany as a clear model of the T4 of uh, excuse me of the sterilization program in 1933. Uh, though the euthanasia program that was in, that was uh, proposed in the Reichstag in 1933 uh, didn't pass because of opposition from the Nazi German public. So the sterilization program passed in 1933. The euthanasia program didn't pass. So the actual T4 euthanasia program in Nazi Germany only started on September 1st, 1939 as a wartime measure act. So just sort of for listeners, Buck versus Bell, which was the decision um, basically allowing this, was 1927. And this was a, you know, it had been kind of gradually growing for the previous 30 years or so. Um, the eugenics movement was a, a sort of right-minded progressive um this is obviously what you would do in order to for the for the sake of the common good for the sake of um uh just general social progress you would definitely not obviously not want certain people to be breeding to have children um and so this is something that seems very straightforward and that all right-minded people um would agree on and you know the, the people who disagreed tended to be um Catholics primarily, and uh, quite a few Protestants were quite all right with eugenics, or uh, yeah, various kinds of eugenic sterilization. Um, but it does seem to me that, in a way, Nazism bought us 60 years more of thinking that this was wrong, and or 70 years of, of being reminded that this approach to human life and this understanding of, of human life and what medicine is for is wrong. But that kind of 70 year delay um, is running out now. And we're kind of picking up where we left off in, you know, 1933, once the Nazis took over from us as the eugenicists in chief. That might be too dark. <laughs> well, I, I did start this uh, conversation start saying this. the sky is falling down. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think I think you're right, Susanna, that we kind of need uh, we need frequent reminders of how evil this is because it's a common human temptation. Uh, we need frequent reminders of why 
we don't want to be this person. Uh, we don't want to attach ourselves to this lineage of despising the weak, destroying the weak, claiming it's a mercy when it's you know a false mercy uh, kind of. But at the same time, I don't think we just need inoculations about reminding ourselves not to be evil. We need examples of what life with the disabled can look like, um, what an expansive, generous life can look like. You can look at places like the the kind of pseudo town for dementia patients that kind of gives them an expansive place they can move through freely and safely rather than just a locked ward. Um, you can look at the examples of many wonderful people who are part of L'Arche, uh, which is the community for living with the disabled, even though its founder, Jean Vanier, kind of brought people together for this purpose, but himself was engaged in sexual abuse, not of the disabled, but of some of his acolytes. So I really want to recognize both the good in that model and the many generous people who have found a way to live in community with the disabled. So I think it doesn't just take a reminder, we don't want to be Nazis. We want to see who we do want to be. I am. Um, I think that what Leah said was is really important. That like it's not enough to just remind ourselves don't be Nazis, uh, and it's not enough to remind ourselves you know don't off sick people. It's the the question I think that all of these that this points to is what what's a good death and is that important? You can think of MAID as being something that's promoted as a kind of bureaucratic tidying away of people at the untidy stage of their you know the untidy point of their life. Um, you know, let's just sort of get rid of these people a couple of years sooner so that the very untidy part um, gets nipped off. Uh, you can think of it as like um, a, a way for, I think this is going to be uniquely appealing to boomers who have spent their lives kind of, you know, thinking of their lives as these creative curated projects, many of them. Um, this is a way of like curating your own death as a kind of like art project. Um, or, you know, this is what is meaningful to me. These are, this is the music that I want to have on. Um, that's, that is like a vision of what a good death is. Um, and I think that one thing that's incredibly crucial to, in, you know, in order to respond to this is to have a different vision of what a good death is. And to have experience with it before you're facing it yourself, right? I think one thing that's very hard is that if you aren't present for people's deaths, um, if everything is kind of fully medicalized or, you know, as a teenager, you're told like, well, we don't want you to visit because we don't worry it will be too upsetting. What you learn is that death is almost unspeakable and unendurable. I think it's hard to plan for your own death, especially having seen none or even having only seen one exposure to the range of how people die as part of preparing for death. I mean, we, we've kind of also seen something similar with, um, uh, within pregnancy, right? That before there was, you know, the default was that people would deliver at hospitals, where it turns out that for many cases, you can deliver at home, right? Um, if there's uh, no complications. Well, the same thing can apply to death as well. I mean, I think this is, again, a little bit beyond the scope in some ways of, of this conversation, although maybe not. Um, but I do think that it's like understand like without a kind of common understanding of what human lives are and what human death is and what comes after it's very difficult to have conversations that make any kind of sense to people who have different visions of that um and you know obviously the, the christian idea is that death is something like graduation and it's something like birth um obviously that was a, a parallel that stephanie green made in in your interview with her in the um new atlantis piece that she feels like it's a delivery um 
and I don't think that she's entirely wrong. I think that her approach is a kind of like, let's do a C-section and that, you know, or like, let's do an abortion as a, as a delivery. I, th- I think it's much more like an abortion than a C-section, having had a C-section. And this is obviously something that it, it, for Christians, they believe that this is the entrance into the new life. This is, you know, along with baptism, which is kind of the preview entrance into the new life. This is literally one of the most, basically the most important thing you can do because it, the way that you die determines what happens after. And soft peddling that for Christians in favor of a purely this worldly, Jesus will help you live a good life now gospel, I don't think is a good thing. I think we need to like come back to a vision of the crucial importance of death and the crucial um, act of corporal, corporal mercy that um, accompanying someone through death is. This is you know, we we don't think that death is good. We don't think it's like a natural, happy part of human life, but we do think it's radically important and it's radically important to do it well and it's possible to do it well. Um, but that doesn't look like the kind of um, self-curated expression of personal will. It looks much more like let your body, you know, let God take hold of the timing of this. Let your body do the work that it's going to do in dying and trust yourself to the people who are caring for you and trust yourself to God as part of the same kind of gesture of surrender and hope. Um, And I just, I'm not sure that there's a way to have a common cultural understanding of death across visions of what death fundamentally is and does. Um, But it's interesting. I I do think that like one of the things that this whole conversation is bringing up is the degree to which you know, our culture has been running on Christian fumes for a couple of centuries now, or, you know, and the, the assumption that death is not something that you take into your own hands is a very distinctly Christian assumption. Like suicide was considered, Cato was a noble suicide in Rome. It was considered a noble and good way to die. Um, and Richard Hanania, who's, uh, he literally was tweeting about, you know, how uh, <laughs> he, he was criticizing the idea that there are suicide hotlines because there's no such thing as a murder hotline, which I, I, I first of all, have you heard of 911? <laughs> <laughs> Second of all, like, it's just if this is really the way if, if Richard Hannity is really how conservatism is going to be like in the future in America, like, we might as well just give up. <laughs> I mean, if someone's reaction is, let's kill grandma because she's old. I, I mean, I, I don't even know where to even start to have a conversation with someone like that. Yeah. Once again, if you don't like the Christian right, wait till you meet the post-Christian right. <laughs> <laughs> they like Rome a lot. And, and not current Catholic Rome. And actually, if we're talking about positive examples here, you know, um, I really love the writings of the Dr. Victoria Sweet, who wrote Slow Medicine and God's Hotel, which kind of steps away from what I see as a kind of precursor assumption to some of the maid regime, which is that a doctor performs procedures. A doctor might even be a vending machine who does stuff, who manages stuff, who overrules the body when the body is unruly. 
Um, and she really talks about the doctor as someone who's in partnership with the body, much more like you know the model of birth in some cases, especially as practiced by midwives. That you know, for the most part, our bodies are good. They're they're not obstacles to our flourishing. They're aids to our flourishing. And I think that's very different than just you know. I, I need to fit this person into one of my buckets that are pretty narrow and restrictive and then get their body to look more like that category. And, you know, in the case of maid, it's, is this a healthy person or someone who should be dead? Right. Those oh, are the gosh. buckets. It's, it's true. Right. Like that's, that's what the sorting is. Is this someone who should live or someone who should die? And if they're kind of in an in-between place, well, how do I decide? How do I decide which bucket they belong in? Because medicine is the practice of sorting and fitting not the practice of observing and responding. What are you currently interested in investigating? What do you think needs to be, what, what are the, what's the main takeaway that you'd like our listeners to, ha to have? There, there's just so much. There's, there really is just so much. And it's just the lack of interest by investigative journalists in Canada is, is surreal. Um, just the lack of curiosity about this is, is surreal. Um, I, I don't have an answer for that, but <laughs> but again, this is the world's largest and fastest growing euthanasia program. Uh, the people who are dying are dying from treatable, incur in some cases even curable medical conditions, um, and they're going to continue dying. Um, something that you know, one conversation that I had with someone who has uh, several disabilities was she was explaining to me how. The only physician that actually spoke to her about her pain, right, about how difficult it was to get medical care, um, the only physician that would, you know, that sat beside her on the gurney, um, you know, the white lab coat and stethoscope and said and spoke to her and said, I understand your pain. I understand what you're going through was the physician that then asked, have you considered me? Mm. Oh, my God. So. This is is happening daily, um, and you know, for obviously the listeners here are presumably mostly American. Um, it is worth fighting for in the United States every step of the way. Um, if you call out organizations that are that are susceptible to this, they do backtrack. Right, the Alzheimer's Association officially issued a press release saying that Compassion Choices, the largest assisted suicide lobby in the country, does not share their values. That is a message worth sharing. Um, many states are debating passing assisted suicide, and it's not going to stop there. They're going to keep fighting to make euthanasia and assisted suicide as permissive as it is in Canada. And inside of Canada, they're going to keep fighting on expanding it further. So I, I, I think there's... I think there's a lot, there's a lot to surmise about this, right? That if this is, it seems like a eugenics. The only people who qualify for this are people with disabilities, right? The only people who are given an option for a physician to end their life are those with disabilities. This reads to me as eugenics. And if it is eugenics, then it's worth fighting, right? We've had this 60 year um, grace period um, you know, following the Second World War and following the death of euthanasia there. Um, but it's coming back and it's coming back internationally. Well, 
on that note, <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Alexander. This has been um, incredibly disturbing and enlightening. And I just want to thank you as well for the reporting that you've done and stay in touch. <laughs> okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. And now we'll be taking your questions, dear listeners, and reflecting on what we've learned over the course of working on this issue of the magazine and this season of the podcast. So uh, first question from you, our listeners, is actually from um, Donna J. Jagannathan, who tweeted at us just now. Y'all talked at a high level about the politics of generational rootedness in the first Plowcast episode for the issue, but I don't remember you talking about a major shift in how families and households are organized. Marriage rates have fallen over the past 50 years, but differentially across people of different education and income levels. Um, people, are, people are marrying later, but financial instability is also an issue. This will have, of course, have further intergenerational consequences, both economic and social. So what do you think about that? So I, he linked to a piece, which we will link to in the show notes. And then I also did a little bit of Googling. Um, and it kind of is even darker than the initial uh, sort of piece indicates. There is just a massive difference in marriage rates and also divorce rates between families of different social classes or people of different social classes, essentially. And essentially, according to Pew, uh, this is data from 2015, among adults aged 25 and older, 65% with a four-year college degree were married, compared with 55% of those with some college education and just 50% among those with no education beyond high school. Um, 25 years ago, the marriage rate was above 60% for all of these groups. So you really see, you know, a pretty hefty drop with educational level among people who are married. And uh, why should that matter? Some might wonder. And that's where the Institute of Family Studies, um, led by our friend and uh, Plow contributor Brad Wilcox, has done some fascinating, but also, as you say, very sobering research for years. I uh, can't recommend their website, um, the Institute of Family Studies website, enough. And we'll link to this paper, Susanna. But if you wanted to summarize why it matters whether people are married. So marriage, uh, so just to sort of frame it a little bit more, before the 1970s, there were not large class divides in American family life. Basically, the vast majority of Americans got and stayed married. Most children lived in stable two-parent families. That's just, that was the way it was for the majority of, you know, the vast majority of Americans. This matters because a lot of life outcomes, including um you know, future earnings, future ability to form stable families of your own, um, uh, health, longevity, um, all are linked to being married. Being married is good for you in a lot of different ways. Just very worldly ways. Uh, and, and a, you know, with an effect rate that is pretty similar to other things that are talked about a lot more, like how much money you inherit, how much sort of educational and social capital you inherit. Just having married parents is like one of the most important gifts um, that parents can give their children or that children can receive from those who uh, created them. So obviously, if you're if you're if you're not born to married parents, you are less likely not obviously you are less likely to get married yourself um, as well. You know, you're you're less likely to be as healthy. You're less likely to be um, to go as far in school, etc. So this this is a multi-generational over time increasing 
um, amplifying effect from generation to generation, which kind of really does start to look like it's creating a kind of caste system, um, a class-based caste system in America between, you know, the married wealthy or upper middle class and the unmarried poor who, you know, as well as being unmarried are less healthy, less able to, um, you know, the children that they have and, and they are having children, which is good. Um, but the children that they have are not as able to form families of their own just because they don't have that kind of pattern um, and experience. And that just seems like a really bad sort of stratified, like hyper stratified, almost caste based system. There's also another aspect to this. And all of this, of course, comes with the disclaimer that none of what we're saying is to kind of blame or shame uh, those who you know, are single parents or, uh, you know, who are not currently living in a marriage, but just the data is such that there's a pretty strong connection between these things. Um, notably, if you're not the child of married parents, if you're not the son of married parents, you're way less likely, you know, to have a father figure in your life, um, to have a father resident in your home. And there's another whole set of data specifically about boys uh the extremely negative effects of not having a dad living with you uh as part of your household um there's this book that has been widely reviewed um this year by um a man called christopher reeves of boys and men um published by the brookings institute so it's not a right-wing screed um that talks about just you know, the crisis of, of boys. Uh, so we're not going to solve any of this stuff except to say that Dan and Jay is absolutely right. Um, marriage really is a super crucial, just, just based on social science data, is a super crucial institution for passing on uh, non-financial wealth from one generation to the next to literally tying those things together. And I think all we can say an answer to Dan and Jay's question is absolutely super important. Uh, and we believe that left and right, secular and religious, everyone should be getting together to support marriage, to encourage marriage, to defend the institution of marriage, uh, and make sure that as many kids as possible grow up in homes where there's a mother and father committed to each other and who are married. And uh, that's not a culture war thing. This is just really about what's good for human beings. And uh, maybe that's about all I have to say, but you may have something to add, Susanna. Um, yeah, just to sort of, there, there is a whole other set of data about um, the effects on girls of having um, households without fathers in them. And that has to do with, you're a lot more likely to be sexually promiscuous, to get um, pregnant out of wedlock, um, to be sort of involved in exploitive, exploitive or abusive relationships if you don't have a father in the home, if you're a girl. Um, so yeah, this is, it's, it's just kind of interesting because like when I was growing up, for some reason I had this vision of like, you know, I don't know, like, like I had this vision that basically everyone, marriage was kind of more of a, like all of the salt of the earth Americans were married. And then it was kind of like the decadent New Yorkers who got divorced. Right. It was, it was the, 
the, the Bohemians, right? Yeah, there. yeah, which doesn't really seem to be the case at all. No, that's that's done. And actually, it's well-educated secular Democrats who are, you know, more likely to be married than self-identifying working-class, you know, conservative people. Of course, you know, there's all kinds of policy nudges that people like the Institute of Family Studies, you know, also study. For me, at least, the strongest, uh, the strongest way of counteracting the decline of marriage is that there's plenty of people modeling happy marriages. Yeah, I mean, literally, like sounds that sounds like uh, a, a stupid moralistic sentiment, but it's really true. For me, growing up, seeing people being, you know, married, even if they, you know, wasn't not everything was was perfect and smooth going but sticking at it was absolutely um there's positive social contagion too yeah and there is also like if there's if there's anything that is kind of amenable to personal choice it is companionate marriage so you know there are a lot of people out there who want to be married and i was married very late and i just want to encourage everyone who feels like it might be, you know, they might have like, whatever, not done the the kind of life pattern that they had expected or wanted to do, be hopeful because, I don't know, I just got married like five seconds ago and it's great. Now, this kind of brings us into our next question. Uh, it's actually a whole bunch of questions and that was this yearning for uh, parents to be in relationship to uh, people, uh, and for the part of on the part of children, and, and yearning on the part of parents uh, to be in connection with their children, uh, and also yearning from those to whom marriage didn't work out uh, for a place and more understanding. A and I don't know. This isn't really something to discuss, um, but I, it did seem something to us worth noticing that our last generation's issue just brought out many, many dozens of super, very heartfelt responses um, from people, yeah, yearning for that sense of intergenerational co connection or of connection to a life partner that they hadn't found. Uh, there's this one uh, that came in from Delana Quintana. D uh, would you be able to read that? Sure. Um, this was actually just in response to P your um, editorial, Peter, I think. I agree that we do a disservice to ourselves and to others when we think we have nothing to learn from previous generations and, they are and that they are somehow of less value than our younger generations. Momsen seems to put a lot of the responsibility for the dis this disinterest on the self-absorption of the young, but I see a bigger cause for this disregard, broken families. My father left when I was a toddler and I have no memories of him. He's made no effort to keep in contact with me. He's a complete stranger. Consequently, I have no interest in discovering who he is or where he came from because he had no interest in me. If young people are failing in their duty of care for the elderly, it may be because the elderly have failed in their duty to the young. There are entire branches of trees that have been broken off by parents, and I do not think it's our children's responsibility to repair that damage. And so this was just like one of, as Pete says, dozens of emails that came in from people primarily in response to Pete's editorial and also to Terrence Sweeney's piece, My Father Left Me Paperclip, 
Um, Wonderful which, piece. Yeah, which basically there there are just so many people out there who are estranged from their children or estranged from their parents or who have broken marriages, but especially the parents and children thing and are just hurting and are wish this weren't the case. And I, I just couldn't help but, um, you know, think about the the verse in Malachi, which is the last book of the in some canons of the Old Testament. Um, which talks about the, the coming the coming Messiah turning the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents as just a sign of the messianic age. And that just seems so true and so powerful because this is such a point of pain for so many people. And, um, you know, if there's anything that we can do to kind of like um, support, to treasure our own connections to our parents and children or to support other people who don't have those connections... That just seems like a big thing to be doing out there. So we turn from parents and children to those who wish they were parents but aren't. So there were also a lot of a whole lot of uh, responses to Matthew Lee Anderson's um, "Is there a right to have children?" piece, and I thought that there were going to be angry responses to this. Honestly, I was kind of expecting people to be pretty pissed. Um, because he comes down pretty strongly against IVF as a, you know, as a procedure that you might use if you're struggling with infertility. And um, basically, again, there were probably a dozen responses, and all of them were, this is representative, this is from Carolyn Anderson, wow, this article is so courageous and necessary. People have been brainwashed and fed lies in their pain. The article acknowledges the pain but relates it back to the cross so well. It didn't mention that the can of worms that contraception brings up, but I think the two are both sides of the playing God coin. Thank you for boldness, for truth. Um, and there were just so many other people who had made the decision themselves very frequently not to do IVF and had felt like everyone around them thought they were crazy not to, or who had been, who had, you know, struggled with the decision and not felt that they had any kind of resources within the church about how to think about this. And there was just so much gratitude to Matthew um, and particularly to the way that he approached this in a very sort of pastoral way, I think. Um, so you all should read that piece as well. Can't recommend Matthew's piece enough. Uh, and I think it really is um, part of this wider thing that we talked about because to the extent that children are viewed as a right, they're also viewed as a lifestyle accessory. And a lifestyle accessory uh, has no claims on its parents, um, his or her parents. These are all part of the same puzzle, it seems to me. And this writer, Carolyn Anderson, mentions contraception as well. Um, so, dear listeners, we're not going to solve all of this right now, uh, but it is fascinating how all these apparently separate issues are really deeply interconnected, and I believe have both in terms of the structure of the problem that we face, um, that we began with talking about, the decline of marriage, uh, they could also have, their interconnection could have something to do with how we solve this stuff, um, that they, they could also get better together. Yeah. All right. We've got another question here from Twitter user AKTR who writes, how can Christian converts relate well to close family members who are hostile to their faith? Relatedly, how can someone who has, as far as they know, who, as, a, as far as they know, with the first Christian in their family line, relate well to their own family history and cultural heritage? Um, I thought that was a really good question. 
I can't speak from personal experience. I was talking about this question with a friend of mine who grew up in South Korea, uh, parents were Buddhist, converted. You know, take the long view, too, um, w was one thing I've seen from him and from other uh, folks in that situation. You know, I think that patient love, really, over the years, can overcome all kinds of barriers. And I've seen, in some cases, obviously not all, that people have come to national deeper love and um, better relationship to their parents through working through an initial rupture. Um, but they had to be willing to keep at it. And then sometimes to, you know, eventually come around and say, Dad and Mom, I'm, I'm sorry that I wasn't more understanding about how this felt to you when I, when I made this step. And possibly, I'm sorry that I was such a cage stage convert for a while and was annoying about it. Um, so the second half of the question, I think, is also interesting. Relatedly, how can someone who is, as far as I know, the first Christian in their family line relate well to their family history and cultural heritage? I think one thing to just think about is that God is at work in all cultures and in all family lines. That these are not like, it's not like, it's not like he, his hand was not on that culture and on, not on your family. Um, it absolutely was. And th those cultures and those families are also part of the story that he's telling. Um, you know, whether or not it's a sort of officially Christian culture, you know, whether it's, you know, Buddhist or, or Hindu or um, Confucian, like, or atheist, like, God is doing a lot of strange things that we don't know about. And um, your family and your culture was not out of his mind or out of his field of love. There's a great book on this that I'd like to just shout out right here, um, and we'll drop a link to it. It's by the German Lutheran uh, pastor and theologian, Christoph Blumhart. And he was writing to his nephew, he who was one of the better known German Christian missionaries in China uh, right before World War One, and he counseled him strongly against uh, ripping people from their cultural roots. Um, but there's a very beautiful insight in there where he discusses all the ways, and he was talking about the Confucian culture of, of China a century ago, that God had been working in the history of the people of China, and it was on that that anyone working for the gospel had to build. And uh, so it's just a book I'd recommend thinking about this. What is the title? Everyone Belongs to God, which kind of sums up his approach, that uh, it is the task of the Christian, yes, to proclaim the gospel, but also to recognize that Christ has walked before us, uh, we, we're not dragging him after us and entering new cultural situations. Mm -hmm. And of course, we do see specific examples of this in, you know, Paul's um, Mars Hill speech in the sort of the way that, you know, in various ways, God had, you know, clearly prepared, um, you know, Greek and Roman culture and, and, and philosophy, in my view, um, and language to receive his gospel and, you know, there are 
C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man actually is a wonderful resource as well to just look at the um, the way that God's wisdom, the natural law, which is his own nature, has imprinted itself in every human culture um, through kind of common ethical standards and, and that sort of thing. And I would say through common um, sort of tropes and stories as well. Um, again, God was doing a very specific and public thing with the Jewish people, but he did not leave um, any of the Gentiles alone, and he hasn't left anyone alone for any of the rest of the time either. We're now going to quickly switch topics before Susanna starts talking about Sorry. Aristotle. No, it's, it's really No, 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 it's good stuff. I actually agree with it. So, but what is our next question? Um, okay, so we are now moving to... We did that, we did that, we did that, we did that. We are now moving to... Um... Okay, the football thing. So... <laughs> We um we are recording. We're recording this. the day after the Super Bowl. Right. After the sorry Chiefs fans, the horrible, undeserved loss of the Eagles at the hands <laughs> of Patrick Mahomes' Chiefs. The um the feast of the superb owl, as some of us know it. And um yeah, we we also had a uh, piece in this latest issue um called Football and the Violence We Love. Um by Reed Forgrave and I would this uh, this piece got the most shocking degree of hatred from people who like agreed with him and disagreed with him like whether they kind of agreed with him or disagreed with him everyone basically hated him which was just interesting it was actually the second article uh Reed's written for us uh it was so funny to me how this just ticked everyone off um, the the piece he wrote last week was, will you watch the Super Bowl? Uh, yes, football is too dangerous, but it's is also why it deserves our love. Reed, interestingly enough, he's a NFL, he covers the NFL uh, professionally as a journalist, but he's also the author of this book, Love Zach, Small Town Football and the Life and Death of an American Boy, which goes deeply into the issue of CTE, so it's... Um, brain damage from um, minor concussions. So he knows really both sides of this, of the, the awfulness and the beautifulness of football. Um, you know, I just think people should read both his articles again. At this time, like dialing down their emotional reactions and actually thinking about uh, some pretty well-considered stuff on both sides. Um, we also have a related question from friend of the pod and friend of the Bruderhof and friend of Plow, Peter Blair. Um, what is your opinion about the disputed rough call at the end of the super, the super Bowl last night? I do not observe the feast of the superb owl, and so I cannot comment. Pete, would you like to comment? Um, you would not have wanted to record the comments that were made in my living room at that call. <laughs> That's good to know. Um, and now we are moving on to our final question. Um, this is a really interesting long email from um, a guy called Bob Alloway. Um, what I would like to learn more about is how your communities seek God's will together. I don't just mean the constitutional questions of who makes decisions and by what majority, but how people are trained to seek and discern God's will, the sort of good habits that Bonhoeffer discusses in life together. Charles Moore says, when a collective decision must be made, we strive to wait patiently before God until there is heartfelt unity among all. This su suggests consensus decisions made by the whole community, as what with the Quakers. 
However, it is clear from Homage to a Broken Man, that all, which is your book, Pete, um, which we will link to in the show notes, that although decisions in Paraguay were the theoretically made by all, in practice they were being manipulated by a few evil men behind the scenes. How do you cultivate disciples nowadays who can discern such things? Um, yeah, I, I thought that was a really interesting question, and I sort of know the answer because I've asked similar questions, but yeah, what did you write back to him? I mean, there's there's a bunch of pieces to it. Yes, uh, we make decisions unanimously um, in the hope that that unanimity comes from the Holy Spirit. That uh, on certainly on important questions, if we all ask God to show us His will, He's going to give us this, all the same answer uh, if we're listening. Um, so that's what we believe. It. To me, it follows that making decisions by majority vote, even though I recognize that goes all the way back to the Council of Nicaea, um, is a really questionable way for a Christian body of believers to, to make decisions. Uh, the idea that the majority should rule over the minority or somehow is the way of discerning what God's will is in a given situation strikes me as, as pretty suspect. Um, so that's sort of the, you could, it's not procedural because there's no procedure to get there, right? I mean, in practice, what it means is that in more practical decisions, uh, the body members will ask a particular brother or sister to be responsible for an area, whether it's a business or a publishing house or the kitchen or, you know, how to, you know, organize the work on a given community. Uh, and give them pretty wide responsibility to make those decisions as best they can. And there's an expectation that we trust that person to basically, you know, have the well-being of all in their heart. Uh, and, of course, if we have a major qualm of conscience about something they're doing, we can uh, speak to them, but also give them a freedom to carry out a responsibility as God gives it to them. Uh, but then when it comes to big, bigger questions, like, you know, d discerning whether someone is called to the ministry or, you know, uh, church-related matters, um, certainly, but, but also other, you know, bigger practical decisions that have a, a spiritual impact, we will really just take time to listen to each other. Um, and here I think his question, how do you kind of develop the good habits that Bonhoeffer discusses in Life Together, I mean, what, there's a few good habits. One is not gossiping about each other. So you'll never make good decisions as a body of believers if before the decision even comes up, you're in the habit of talking behind each other's back. Uh, that, that will pretty much automatically block any sort of heartfelt unity that you might want to have. Um, another one is to take you know, St. Paul at his word when he says to esteem others higher than yourself. So yes, have opinions, have your insights, feel free to articulate them, maybe strongly, and then be willing to uh, let go of them and listen to other people and, 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 and literally park your opinions. Now, people hate that when you say that sometimes. Um, they'll say, oh, you know, then I'm expected to just sign up for groupthink um, and just you know, deny my own convictions. Yeah, I mean, that would be the, a, a bad form of that. But I think there's also just a huge level of human realism that actually all of us know from 
you know, say within a family or within a marriage, that there are absolutely times when you express what you think and then you'll leave it and and know that you're not uh, you're not the only one with a hotline to God, right? (laughs) There is nothing safe about trying to make decisions this way. There is no procedural safeguard. Uh, It can be abused. Uh, He references, you know, some stories I tell from our community's history uh, where there were times when sort of the appearance of consensus was used to kind of browbeat people into conformity. Absolutely, that can happen. I mean, one of my favorite little um, factoids, Susanna, is that the British House of Lords, uh, up I believe until the 16th century, used to make decisions unanimously uh, because it was considered, I, I suppose, beneath the dignity of the House, you know, to have this sort of messy political, uh, democratic, you know, vote trading Bad vibes. going on among the peers, right? It's ungentlemanly. And they abandon it for just this reason, right? Because if there's this always this expectation that everyone has to come to the same conclusion at the end, um, then this creates a huge amount of pressure on the single holdout, who may be the person who's right, right? Um, to just get with the program. 12 Angry Men. 12 Angry Men is a wonderful Sidney Libat movie about this yes. dynamic that everyone should yes, watch. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> we'll link to that too in the show notes. And, and there, there kicks in that good habit again of listening to each other, right? Which is all stuff the New Testament tells us to do. Submit to one another in love. Mm-hmm. It is interesting, as you, were discu- as you were talking about this before you made the House of Lords reference, when you what you described as you know you shouldn't be gossiping about each other like the the word that we have for gossiping in advance of a vote like talking behind people's backs in advance of a vote is politicking or canvassing or something like that forming coalitions and there's something like fundamentally sort of that is not the kind of thing that you should be doing in the church that's not how that should really be working and that's interesting if your brothers and sisters, kind of by definition, I mean, just thinking of those words, brothers and sisters in Christ, there's something deeply um, inconsistent to that if you are forming factions of people who are with me against them. You know, and then obviously, you know, that too, right, um, can't, can't turn into some type of legalistic rule that, so that somebody who is actually being hurt <laughs> can't go to a person they trust and say, you know, I don't dare to say this to, you know, person X, but Pete's really being a jerk to me, right? No, never. That would never No, happen. that would never happen. But just hypothetically, right? Like, obviously, like, none of this stuff can turn into law. Yeah. But if it's really, if, if there's love among us and if there's the desire for trust among us, uh, even if that trust is broken, we're going to get back to trust so that we can try to make the decisions this way. Um, so that may sound like a whole bunch of idealism and impractical. We've been trying to do this for a hundred years. Um, like I said, there's no guarantee it works, but you know, there's no guarantee that Christian community works. Yeah, there we go. Um, well, I think that pretty much wraps up our Q and A's for this issue, um, or this, yeah, this season, this series of the podcast. Um, and yeah, uh. That was awesome, Pete. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast needs met and share with your friends. For a lot more content like this, check out plow.com for the digital magazine. 
You can also subscribe. $36 a year will get you the print magazine, or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits, from free books, to regular calls with the editors, to invitations to special events, and the occasional gift. Our members are one aspect of the broader Plow community, and we depend on them as a kind of extra advisory council. Go to plow.com to learn more. That's it for this season of the podcast, but check back here this time next week and for the five weeks following for Plow Read, one of the articles from the current issue in audio format. And we'll see you back here in six weeks for our next podcast series linked to our pain and passion issue. Thanks very much, guys. Bye-bye.